Chapter 40 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Varney the Vampire, Volume 1, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 40 The Popular Riot. Sir Francis Varney's Danger. The Suggestion and Its Results. Such, then, were the circumstances which at once altered the whole aspect of the affairs, and from private and domestic causes of very deep annoyance, led to public results of a character which seemed likely to involve the whole countryside in the greatest possible confusion. But while we blame Mr. Chillingworth for being so indiscreet as to communicate the secret of such a person as Varney the Vampire to his wife, we trust in a short time to be able to show that he made as much reparation as it was possible to make for the mischief he had unintentionally committed. And now as he struggled onward, apparently onward, first and foremost among the rioters, he was really doing all in his power to quell that tumult which superstition and dread had raised. Human nature truly delights in the marvellous, and in proportion as a knowledge of the natural phenomena of nature is restricted, and unbridled imagination allowed to give the rein to fathomless conjecture, we shall find an eagerness likewise to believe the marvellous to be the truth. That dim and uncertain condition concerning vampires, originating probably as it had done in Germany, had spread itself very slowly, but insidiously, throughout the whole of the civilized world. In no country and in no clime is there not something which bears a kind of family relationship to the veritable vampire of which Sir Francis Varney appeared to be so choice a specimen. The ghoul of eastern nations is but the same being, altered to suit habits and localities, and the Sema of the Scandinavians is but the vampire of a more primitive race, and a personification of that morbid imagination which has once fancied the probability of the dead walking again among the living, with all the frightful insignia of corruption and the grave about them. Although not popular in England, still there had been tales told of such midnight visitants, so that Mrs. Chillingworth, when she had imparted the information which she had obtained, had already some rough material to work upon in the minds of her auditors, and therefore there was no great difficulty in very soon establishing the fact. Under such circumstances ignorant people always do what they have heard was done by someone else before them, and in an incredibly short space of time the propriety of catching Sir Francis Varney, depriving him of his vampire-like existence, and driving a stake through his body, became not at all a questionable proposition. Alas, poor Mr. Chillingworth! As well he might have attempted King Canute's task of stemming the waves of the ocean as that of attempting to stop the crowd from proceeding to Sir Francis Varney's house. His very presence was a sort of confirmation of the whole affair. In vain he gesticulated, in vain he begged and prayed that they would go back, and in vain he declared that full and ample justice should be done upon the vampire, provided popular clamors spared him, and he was left to more deliberate judgment. Those who were foremost in the throng paid no attention to these remonstrances, while those who were more distant heard them not, and for all they knew, he might be urging the crowd on to violence instead of deprecating it. Thus, then, this disorderly rabble now reached the house of Sir Francis Varney and loudly demanded of his terrified servants where he was to be found. The knocking at the hall door was prodigious, and with a laudable desire doubtless of saving time, the moment one was done amusing himself with the ponderous knocker another seized it, so that until the door was flung open by some of the bewildered and terrified men there was no cessation whatever of the furious demand for admittance. 
Varney the Vampire! Varney the Vampire! cried a hundred voices. Death to the Vampire! Where is he? Bring him out! Varney the Vampire! The servants were too terrified to speak for some moments, as they saw such a tumultuous assemblage seeking their master while so singular a name was applied to him. At length, one more bold than the rest contrived to stammer out, My good people, Sir Francis Varney is not at home. He took an early breakfast, and has been out nearly an hour. The mob paused a moment in indecision, and then one of the foremost cried, Who'd suppose they'd only was at home? He's hiding somewhere, of course. Let's pull him out. Uh, pull him out! Pull him out! cried many voices. A rush was made into the house, and in a very few minutes its chambers were ransacked, and all its hidden places carefully searched, with the hope of discovering the hidden form of Sir Francis Varney. The servants felt that, with their inefficient strength, to oppose the proceedings of an assemblage which seemed to be unchecked by all sort of law or reason would be madness. They therefore only looked on, with wonder and dismay, satisfied certainly in their own minds that Sir Francis would not be found, and indulging in much conjecture as to what would be the result of such violent and unexpected proceedings. Mr. Chillingworth hoped that time was gained, and that some sort of indication of what was going on would reach the unhappy object of popular detestation sufficiently early to enable him to provide for his own safety. He knew he was breaking his own engagement to be present at the duel between Henry Bannerworth and Sir Francis Varney, and as that thought recurred to him he dreaded that his professional services might be required on one side or the other, for he knew, or fancied he knew, that mutual hatred dictated the contest, and he thought that if ever a duel had taken place which was likely to be attended with some disastrous result, that was surely the one. But how could he leave, watched and surrounded as he was by an infuriated multitude? How could he hope but that his footsteps would be dogged, or that the slightest attempt of his to convey a warning to Sir Francis Varney would not be the means of bringing down upon his head the very danger he sought to shield him from? In this state of uncertainty, then, did our medical man remain, a prey to the bitterest reflections and full of the direst apprehensions, without having the slightest power of himself to alter so disastrous a train of circumstances. Dissatisfied with their non-success, the crowd twice searched the house of Sir Francis Varney, from the attics to the basement, and then, and not until then, did they begin reluctantly to believe that the servants must have spoken the truth. "'He's in the town somewhere!' cried one. "'Let's go back to the town!' It is strange how suddenly any mob will obey any impulse and this perfectly groundless supposition was sufficient to turn their steps back again in the direction whence they came, and they had actually, in a straggling sort of column, reached halfway towards the town, when they encountered a boy, whose professional pursuit consisted in tending sheep very early of a morning, and who at once informed them that he had seen Sir Francis Varney in the wood, halfway between Bannerworth Hall and his own home. This event at once turned the whole tide again, and with renewed clamours carrying Mr. Chillingworth along with them, they now rapidly neared the real spot where probably, had they turned a little earlier, they would have viewed the object of their suspicion and hatred. But as we have already recorded, the advancing throng was seen by the parties on the ground, where the duel could scarcely have been said to have been fought, and then had Sir Francis Varney dashed into the wood, which was so opportunely at hand to afford him a shelter from his enemies, and from the intricacies of which, well acquainted with them as he doubtless was, he had every chance of eluding their pursuit. The whole affair was a great surprise to Henry and his friends. When they saw such a string of people advancing with such shouts and imprecations, 
they could not for the life of them imagine what could have excited such a turnout among the ordinarily industrious and quiet inhabitants of a town remarkable rather for the quietude and steadiness of its population than for any violent outbreaks of popular feeling what can mr chillingworth be about said henry to bring such a mob here has he taken leave of his senses nay said marchdale look again he seems to be trying to keep them back although ineffectually for they will not be stayed damn you said the admiral here's a gang of pirates we shall be boarded and carried before we know where we are jack aye aye sir said jack and is that all you've got to say you lubber when you see your admiral in danger you'd better go and make terms with the enemy at once really this is serious said henry they shout for varney can mr chillingworth have been so mad as to adopt this means of stopping the duel impossible said marchdale if that had been his intention he could have done so quietly through the medium of the civil authorities hang me exclaimed the admiral if there are any civil authorities they talk of smashing somebody what do they say jack i don't hear quite so well as i used you always was a little deaf said jack what a little deaf i say why you lubberly lying swab how dare you say so because you was you slave-going scoundrel for heaven's sake do not quarrel at such a time as this said henry we shall be surrounded in a moment come mr marchdale let you and i visit these people and ascertain what it is that has so much excited their indignation agreed said marchdale and they both stepped forward at a rapid pace to meet the advancing throng the crowd which had now approached to within a short distance of the expectant little party was of a most motley description and its appearance under many circumstances would cause considerable risibility men and women were mixed indiscriminately together and in the shouting the latter if such a thing were possible exceeded the former both in discordance and energy every individual composing that mob carried some weapon calculated for defence such as flails scythes sickles bludgeons etc and this mode of arming caused them to wear a most formidable appearance while the passion that superstition had called up was strongly depicted in their inflamed features their fury too had been excited by their disappointment and it was with concentrated rage that they now pressed onward the calm and steady advance of henry and mr marchdale to meet the advancing throng seemed to have the effect of retarding their progress a little and they came to a parley at a hedge which separated them from the meadow in which the duel had been fought you seem to be advancing towards us said henry do you seek me or any of my friends and if so upon what errand mr chillingworth for heaven's sake explain what is the cause of all this tumult you seem to be at the head of it seem to be said mr chillingworth without being so you are not sought nor any of your friends who then sir francis varney was the immediate reply indeed and what has he done to incite popular indignation of private wrong i can accuse him but i desire no crowd to take up my cause or to avenge my quarrels mr bannerworth it has become known through my indiscretion that sir francis varney is suspected of being a vampire is this so hurrah shouted the mob down with the vampire hurrah where is he down with him drive a stake through him said a woman it's the only way and the humanistest you've only got to take a hedge stake and sharpen it a bit at one end and char it a little in the fire so as there may be no splinters to hurt and then poke it through his stomach the mob gave a great shout at this humane piece of advice and it was some time before henry could make himself heard at all even to those who were nearest to him 
When he succeeded in doing so, he cried with a loud voice, Hear me, all of you! It is quite needless for me to inquire how you became possessed of the information that a dreadful suspicion hangs over the person of Sir Francis Varney. But if in consequence of hearing such news, you fancy this public demonstration will be agreeable to me, or likely to relieve those who are nearest or dearest to me from the state of misery and apprehension into which they have fallen, you are much mistaken. Hear him! Hear him! cried Mr. Marchdale. He speaks both wisdom and truth. If anything, pursued Henry, could add to the annoyance of vexation and misery we have suffered, it would assuredly be the being made subjects of everyday clamour. You hear him, said Mr. Marchdale. Yes, we does, said a man. But we comes out to catch a vampire for all that. Oh, to be sure, said the humane woman. Nobody's feelings is nothing to us. Are we to be woke up in the middle of the night with vampires sucking bloods while we've got a stake in the country? Hurrah! shouted everybody. Down with the vampire! Where is he? You are wrong, I assure you, you are all wrong, said Mr. Chillingworth imploringly. There is no vampire here. You see, Sir Francis Varney has not only escaped, but he will take the law of all of you. This was an argument which appeared to stagger a few, but the bolder spirits pushed them on, and a suggestion to search the wood having been made by someone who was more cunning than his neighbours, that measure was at once proceeded with, and executed in a systematic manner, which made those who knew it to be the hiding-place of Sir Francis Varney tremble for his safety. It was with a strange mixture of feeling that Henry Bannerworth waited the result of the search for the man who, but a few minutes before, had been opposed to him at a contest of life or death. The destruction of Sir Francis Varney would certainly have been an effectual means of preventing him from continuing to be the incubus he then was upon the Bannerworth family, and yet the generous nature of Henry shrank with horror from seeing even such a creature as Varney sacrificed at the shrine of popular resentment, and murdered by an infuriated populace. He felt as great an interest in the escape of the vampire as if some great advantage to himself had been contingent upon such an event and although he spoke not a word, while the echoes of the little wood were all awakened by the clamorous manner in which the mob searched for their victim, his feelings could be read well upon his countenance. The admiral, too, without possessing probably the fine feelings of Henry Bannerworth, took an unusually sympathetic interest in the fate of the vampire, and after placing himself in various attitudes of intense excitement, he exclaimed, "'Damn it, Jack! I do hope, after all, the vampire will get the better of them! It's like a whole flotilla attacking one vessel!' A lovely proceeding at the best, and I'll be hanged if I like it. I should like to pour in a broadside into those fellows just to let them see it wasn't a proper English mode of fighting. Shouldn't you, Jack? Aye, aye, sir, I should. Shiver me if I see an opportunity, if I don't let some of those rascals know what's what. Scarcely had these words escaped the lips of the old admiral than there arose a loud shout from the interior of the wood. It was a shout of success, and seemed at the very least to herald the capture of the unfortunate Varney. "'By heaven!' exclaimed Henry. "'They have him!' "'God forbid,' said Mr. Marchdale. "'This grows too serious.' "'Bear a hand, Jack,' said the Admiral. "'We'll have a fight for it yet. They shan't murder even a vampire in cold blood. Load the pistols and send a flying shot or two among the rascals the moment they appear.' "'No, no,' said Henry. No more violence. There has been enough. There has been enough. Even as he spoke, there came rushing from the trees, at the corner of the wood, the figure of a man. They needed but one glance to assure them who it was. 
Sir Francis Varney had been seen and was flying before those implacable foes who had sought his life. He had divested himself of his huge cloak as well as of his low slouched hat, and with a speed which nothing but the most absolute desperation could have enabled him to exert, he rushed onward, beating down before him every obstacle, and bounding over the meadows at a rate that if he could have continued it for any length of time would have set pursuit at defiance. "'Bravo!' shouted the Admiral. "'A stern chase is a long chase, and I wish them joy of it. Damn you, Jack, did you ever see anybody get along like that?' "'Aye, aye, sir.' "'You never did, you scoundrel.' "'Yes, I did.' "'When and where?' "'When you ran away off the sand.' The Admiral turned nearly blue with anger, but Jack looked perfectly imperturbable as he added, "'You know you ran away after the French frigates who wouldn't stay to fight with you?' "'Ah, that indeed.' "'There he goes, putting on every stitch of canvas. I'll be bound.' "'And here they come,' said Jack, as he pointed to the corner of the wood, and some of the more active of the vampire's pursuers showed themselves. It would appear as if the vampire had been started from some hiding-place in the interior of the wood, and had then thought it expedient altogether to leave that retreat and make his way to some more secure one across the open country, where there would be more obstacles to his discovery than perseverance could overcome. Probably then, among the brushwood and trees, for a few moments he had been again lost sight of, until those who were closest upon his track had emerged from among the dense foliage, and saw him scouring across the country at such headlong speed. These were but few, and in their extreme anxiety themselves to capture Varney, whose precipitate and terrified flight brought a firm conviction to their minds of his being a vampire, they did not stop to get much of a reinforcement, but plunged on like greyhounds in his track. "'Jack!' said the Admiral. "'This won't do!' Look at that great lubberly fellow with a queer smock-frock. Never saw such a figurehead in my life, said Jack. Stop him! Aye, aye, sir. The man was coming on at a prodigious rate, and Jack, with all the deliberation in the world, advanced to meet him. And when they got sufficiently close together that in a few moments they must encounter each other, Jack made himself into as small a bundle as possible, and presented his shoulder to the advancing countryman in such a way that he flew off it at a tangent, as if he had ran against a brick wall and after rolling head over heels for some distance, safely deposited himself in a ditch, where he disappeared completely for a few moments from all human observation. "'Don't say I hit you,' said Jack. "'Curse you, what did you run against me for?' "'Sarves you right. Lovers as don't know how to steer in course runs again things.' "'Bravo!' said the Admiral. "'There's another of them!' The pursuers of Varney the Vampire, however, now came too thick and fast to be so easily disposed of, and as soon as his figure could be seen coursing over the meadows, and springing over road and ditch with an agility almost frightful to look upon, the whole rabble rout was in pursuit of him. By this time, the man who had fallen into the ditch had succeeded in making his appearance in the visible world again, and as he crawled up the bank, looking a thing of mire and mud, Jack walked up to him with all the carelessness in the world, and said to him, "'Any luck, old chap?' "'Oh, murder!' said the man. "'What do you mean? Who are you? Where am I?' "'What's the matter? Old Master Fowler, the fat crowner, will set upon me now.' "'Have you caught anything?' said Jack. "'Caught anything?' "'Yes, you've been in for eels, haven't you?' "'Damn!' "'Well, it is odd to me, as some people can't go a-fishing without getting out of temper. "'Have it your own way. I won't interfere with you.' And away Jack walked. The man cleared the mud out of his eyes as well as he could, and looked after him with a powerful suspicion that in Jack he saw the very cause of his mortal mishap. But somehow or other 
His immersion in the not over limpid stream had wonderfully cooled his courage, and casting one despairing look upon his begrimed apparel, and another at the last of the stragglers who were pursuing Sir Francis Varney across the fields, he thought it prudent to get home as fast he could, and get rid of the disagreeable results of an adventure which had turned out for him anything but auspicious or pleasant. Mr. Chillingworth, as though by a sort of impulse to be present in case Sir Francis Varney should really be run down, and with a hope of saving him from personal violence, had followed the foremost of the rioters in the wood, found it now quite impossible for him to carry on such a chase as that which was being undertaken across the fields after Sir Francis Varney. His person was unfortunately but ill-qualified for the continuance of such a pursuit, and although with the greatest reluctance he at last felt himself compelled to give it up. In making his way through the intricacies of the wood, he had been seriously incommoded by the thick undergrowth, and had accidentally encountered several miry pools, with which he had involuntarily made a closer acquaintance than was at all conducive either to his personal appearance or comfort. The doctor's temper, though, generally speaking, one of the most even, was at last affected by his mishaps, and he could not refrain from an execration upon his want of prudence in letting his wife have a knowledge of a secret that was not his own, and the producing of an unlooked-for circumstance, the termination of which might be of a most disastrous nature. Tired, therefore, and nearly exhausted by the exertions he had already taken, he emerged now along from the wood, and near the spot where stood Henry Bannerworth and his friends in consultation. The jaded look of the surgeon was quite sufficient indication of the trouble and turmoil he had gone through, and some expressions of sympathy for his condition were dropped by Henry, to whom he replied, My young friend, I deserve it all. I have nothing but my own indiscretion to thank for all the turmoil and tumult that has arisen this morning. But to what possible cause can we attribute such an outrage? Reproach me as much as you will, I deserve it. A man may prate of his own secrets if he like, but he should be careful of those of other people. I trusted yours to another, and am properly punished." "'Enough,' said Henry. "'We'll say no more of that, Mr. Chillingworth. What is done cannot be undone, and we had better spend our time in reflection of how to make the best of what is than in useless lamentation over its causes. What is to be done?' "'Nay, nay I know not. Have you fought the duel?' "'Yes, and as you perceive, harmlessly.' "'Thank heaven for that.' "'Nay, I had my fire, which Sir Francis Varney refused to return, so the affair had just ended, when the sound of approaching tumult came upon our ears.' "'What a strange mixture!' exclaimed Marchdale. "'Of feelings and passions this Varney appears to be, "'at one moment acting with the apparent greatest malignity, "'and another seeming to have awakened in his mind "'a romantic generosity which knows no bounds. "'I cannot understand him.' "'Nor I, indeed,' said Henry. "'But somehow tremble for his fate, "'and I seem to feel that something ought to be done "'to save him from the fearful consequences of popular feeling. "'Let us hasten to the town and procure what assistance we may.' but a few persons well organized and properly armed will achieve wonders against a desultory and ill-appointed multitude there may be a chance of saving him yet from the imminent danger which surrounds him that's proper cried the admiral i don't like to see anybody run down a fair fight's another thing yard-arm and yard-arm stink-pots and pipkins broadside to broadside and throw in your bodies if you like on the lee quarter but don't do anything shabby what do you think of it jack why, I means to say as how if Varney only keeps on sale as he's been doing, that the devil himself wouldn't catch him in a gale. And yet, said Henry, it is our duty to do the best we can. Let us at once to the town and summons all the assistance in our power. Come on, come on. His friends needed no further urging, but at a brisk pace they all proceeded by the nearest footpaths towards the town. 
It puzzled his pursuers to think in what possible direction Sir Francis Varney expected to find sustenance or succor, when they saw how curiously he took his flight across the meadows. Instead of endeavouring by any circuitous path to seek the shelter of his own house, or to throw himself upon the care of the authorities of the town, who must to the extent of their power have protected him, he struck across the wells, apparently without aim or purpose, seemingly intent upon nothing but to distance his pursuers in a long chase, which might possibly tire them, or it might not, according to their or his powers of endurance. We say this seemed to be the case, but it was not so in reality. Sir Francis Varney had a deeper purpose, and it was scarcely to be supposed that a man of his subtle genius, and apparently far-seeing and reflecting intellect, could have so far overlooked the many dangers of his position not to be fully prepared for some such contingency as that which had just now occurred. Holding as he did so strange a place in society, living among men, and yet possessing so few attributes in common with humanity, he must all along have felt the possibility of drawing upon himself popular violence. He could not wholly rely upon the secrecy of the Bannerworth family, much as they might well be supposed to shrink from giving publicity to circumstance of so fearfully strange and perilous a nature as those which had occurred amongst them. The merest accident might at any moment make him the town's talk, the overhearing of a few chance words by some gossiping domestic, some ebullition of anger or annoyance by some member of the family, or a communication from some friend who had been treated with confidence, might at any time awaken around him such a storm as that which now raged at his heels. Varney the vampire must have calculated this, he must have felt the possibility of such a state of things, and, as a matter of course, politically provided himself with some place of refuge. After about twenty miles of hard chasing across the fields there could be no doubt of his intentions. He had such a place of refuge, and strange a one as it might appear, he sped towards it in as direct a line as ever a well-sped arrow flew towards its mark. That place of refuge, to the surprise of every one, appeared to be the ancient ruin of which we have before spoken, and which was so well known to every inhabitant of the county. Truly it seemed like some act of mere desperation for Sir Francis Varney to hope there to hide himself. There remained within, of what had once been a stately pile, but a few grey crumbling walls, which the hunted hare would have passed unheeded, knowing that not for one instant could he have baffled his pursuers by seeking so inefficient a refuge and those who followed hard and fast upon the track of Sir Francis Varney felt so sure of their game when they saw whither he was speeding that they relaxed in their haste considerably, calling loudly to each other that the vampire was caught at last, for he could be easily surrounded among the old ruins and dragged from amongst its moss-grown walls. In another moment, with a wild dash and cry of exultation, he sprang out of sight, behind an angle formed by what had been, at one time, one of the principal supports of the ancient structure. Then, as if there was still something so dangerous about him, that only by a great number of hands could he be hoped to be secured, the infuriated peasantry gathered in a dense circle around what they considered his temporary place of refuge, and as the sun, which had now climbed above the treetops, and dispersed, in a great measure, many of the heavy clouds of the morning, shone down upon the excited group, they might have been supposed there assembled to perform some superstitious rite, which time had hallowed as an association of the crumbling ruin around which they stood. By the time the whole of the stragglers who had persisted in the chase had come up, there might have been about fifty or sixty resolute men, each intent upon securing the person of one whom they felt, while in existence, would continue to be a terror to all the weaker and dearer portions of their domestic circles. There was a pause of several minutes. Those who had come the fleetest were gathering breath, and those who had come up last were looking to their more forward companions for some information as to what had occurred before their arrival. 
All was profoundly still within the ruin, and then suddenly, as if by common consent, there arose from every throat a loud shout of, Down with the vampire! Down with the vampire! The echoes of that shout died away, and then all was still as before, while a superstitious feeling crept over the boldest. It would almost seem as if they had expected some kind of response from Sir Francis Varney to the shout of defiance with which they had just greeted him. But the very calmness, repose, and absolute quiet of the ruin, and all about it, alarmed them, and they looked the one at the other as if the adventure, after all, were not one of the pleasantest description, and might not fall out so happily as they had expected. Yet what danger could there be? There were they, more than half the hundred stout, strong men, to cope with one. They felt convinced that he was completely in their power, they knew the ruins could not hide him, and that five minutes' time given to the task would suffice to explore every nook and corner of them. And yet they hesitated, while an unknown terror shook their nerves, and seemingly from the very fact that they had run down their game successfully they dreaded to secure the trophy of the chase. One bold spirit was wanting, and, if it was not a bold one that spoke at length, he might be complimented as being comparatively such. It was one who had not been foremost in the chase, perchance from want of physical power, who now stood forward and exclaimed, "'What are you waiting for now? You can have him when you like. If you want your wives and children to sleep quietly in their beds, you will secure the vampire. Come on, we all know he's here. Why do you hesitate? Do you expect me to go alone and draw him out by the ears?' Any voice would have sufficed to break the spell which bound them. This did so, and with one accord, and yells of imprecations, they rushed forward and plunged among the old walls of the ruin. Less time than we have before remarked would have enabled anyone to explore the tottering fabric sufficient to bring a conviction to their minds that, after all, there might have been some mistake about the matter, and Sir Francis Varney was not quite caught yet. It was astonishing how the fact of not finding him in a moment again roused all their angry feelings against him, and dispelled every feeling of superstitious awe with which he had been surrounded. Rage gave place to the sort of shuddering horror with which they had before contemplated his immediate destruction, when they had believed him to be virtually within their very grasp. Over and over again the ruins were searched, hastily and impatiently by some, carefully and deliberately by others, until there could be no doubt upon the mind of every one individual that somehow or somewhere, within the shadow of those walls, Sir Francis Varney had disappeared most mysteriously. Then it would have been a strange sight for any indifferent spectator to have seen how they shrunk, one by one, out of the shadow of those ruins, each seeming to be afraid that the vampire, in some mysterious manner, would catch him if he happened to be the last within their sombre influence and when they had all collected in the bright open space, some little distance beyond, they looked at each other and at the ruin, with dubious expressions of countenance, each, no doubt, wishing that each would suggest something of a consolatory or practicable character. "'What's to be done now?' said one. "'Ah, that's it,' said another sententiously. "'I'll be hanged if I know.' "'He's given us the slip,' remarked a third. "'But he can't have given us the slip.' said one man, who was particularly famous for a dogmatical spirit of argumentation. How is it possible? He must be here, and I say he is here. Find him, then, cried several at once. Oh, that's nothing to do with the argument. He's here, whether we find him or not. One very cunning fellow laid his finger on his nose, and beckoned to a comrade to retire some paces, where he delivered himself of the following very oracular sentiment. My good friend, you must know Sir Francis Varney is here, or he isn't. "'Agreed, agreed. Well, if he isn't here, it's no use troubling our heads any more about him. But otherwise it's quite another thing, and upon the whole I must say that I rather think he is.' 
All looked at him, for it was evident he was big with some suggestion. After a pause he resumed. Now, my good friends, I propose that we all appear to give it up, and to go away, but that some one of us shall remain and hide among the ruins for some time, to watch, in case the vampire makes his appearance from some hole or corner that we haven't found out. Oh, capital! said everybody. Then you all agree to that? Yes, yes! Very good. That's the only way to nick him. Now we'll pretend to give it up. Let's all of us talk loud about going home. They did all talk loud about going home. They swore that it was not worth the trouble of catching him, that they gave it up as a bad job, that he might go to the deuce in any way he liked for all they cared, and then they all walked off in a body when the man who had made the suggestion suddenly cried, Hilloa! Hilloa! Stop! Stop! You know one of us is to wait. Oh, I! Yes, yes, yes! said everybody, and still they moved on. But really, you know, what's the use of this? Who's to wait? That was indeed a naughty question which induced a serious consultation, and ending in there all with one accord, pitching upon the author of the suggestion as by far the best person to hide in the ruins and catch the vampire. Then they all set off at full speed, but the cunning fellow, who certainly had not the slightest idea of so practically carrying out his own suggestion, scampered off after them, with a speed that soon brought him in the midst of the throng again, and so with fear in their looks, and all the evidences of fatigue about them, they reached the town to spread fresh and more exaggerated accounts of the mysterious conduct of Varney the Vampire. End of chapter 40